Nobody likes to be picked last, do they? I don't know if you had this experience. I, I didn't, thank God. But uh, remember back in junior high or elementary school, and they divide the two teams up, and then everybody's going to pick, you know, who's going to be on whose team. And they start going through, and they pick this person and that person, this person, that person. And the second to the last person is always like the one who won the lottery, you know, because they chose them, you know, but they weren't the last person I had to be stuck with. Nobody ever wants to be the last person. Very few times is there ever a benefit to being last. There's almost always the benefit to being first. I had a friend of mine that uh, he was going through a weight loss journey. He was getting to a, a life of health. And uh, he was sharing some stories with me just about some things, some goals that he was heading towards. This is several years ago. And he was talking about his desire uh, to actually go and walk or, or run a, a 5K or a 10K, some sort of race that he would never have thought he could do before. And so he decides that he's going to set the time. And so he signs up for like um, the Disney Marathon where they have like four or five different races that are happening that weekend at Disney. The weekend comes and we've been sharing a little bit about just his direction, his life, what he's hoping to make happen. And he actually goes that weekend and, uh, you know, he's got the little, you know, the sign, the nameplate or whatever with the numbers on it. You know, he's figured out what he's wearing. He's got his favorite kicks on. He's going to go run or walk or do whatever he's going to do. And comes time for his race. And so the next uh, week time I see him, he comes walking in and I see my friend. I said, hey, how, how was your race? How, what was it like? Did you, did you do everything you wanted to do? His head kind of goes down. He kind of kicks the ground a little bit. He goes, well, it didn't go so well. I said, what do you mean it didn't go so well, you know? He says, well, you know, I, I, I didn't want to run it. Yeah, I was just going to walk it. I just want to be able to complete the race. And, and he says, you know, there's that time, you know, they kind of have the, the people who, you know, when we first take off, a lot of people just start running and they're just going full speed. And then there are those of us that are walking and we're at a pretty good pace. And so for the first while I was doing okay, but it became very clear that I hadn't been consistent in my working out. I hadn't been consistent in my training and I was in for a world of hurt. And so I just kind of slowed down. I was just trying to put one foot in front of the other. And uh, he says, you know, they, they actually set a time limit for what's expected to be able to complete a race, whether it's a mile or a 5K or 10K, whatever it is, or a marathon. And he said, um, you know, so it, uh, I, I'm struggling. I've stopped to get something to drink. You know, I'm doing everything to kind of keep my legs limbered up. I'm trying to just put one foot in front of the other. And uh, he said, apparently, um, the time had passed by which everybody should be done for the race. I said, well, how, how did you know that? He said, um, a van comes by. I don't know if you know this, but those of us who can't finish the race in time, they send a nice little courtesy van around and uh, you get the right of shame. And I said, really, how was it? He said, it was terrible. It was terrible. I had all these dreams. All I wanted to do was to be able to, to just finish the race. I said, well, did they take you back to the end? They said, yeah. I said, well, technically you finished. He said, yeah, but that's not what I want. That's not what I hope for. And I began to think about that a little bit today in today's discussion because so many of us are afraid of leveraging our lives for something else that we're afraid that there's, there's the van of shame that's going to pull up and pick us up and take us on our journey, right? And I'm so thankful that we worship a God, that we have surrendered our lives to a God who's not a God of shame. He's a God of grace and justice who loves us deeply. And we're going to look at a passage today that I think helps remind us of God's true character and how then we might live in the world that we're a part of. It's a challenge. It's something for us to apply for our everyday lives. 
I want to unpack for a moment just the idea of this, this series, though, that we're in and kind of give us some framework of what we're trying to understand and what we're trying to capture out of this concept, this series called Parables. And when we define the concept of parables, we're talking about fictional short stories with earthly examples to convey a spiritual truth. It's not just a fable. It's not just a moral. It's not just something that we can kind of stick on a coffee mug. It's something that when we grasp and understand its meaning, it should begin to catalyze uh, character change in us. It should begin to grow us and stretch us in ways that we would not naturally grow on our own. But as we begin to understand that parables should evoke a response out of us, they should grab us, they should pull us into the story and then cause some sort of visceral response, we're reminded that parables teach us things that we may not want to hear. It's kind of a gentle way of pulling someone close and letting them know that as we're calling them out, our intention is to really call them up. In a parable, you can begin to see yourself within the story, but also reflect on how your life plays out according to that. And so let's jump into our parable for the day, and we'll just call it the parable of workers in the vineyard, a short story about something, anything other than charity. If you got your Bibles, please go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 is where we're actually going to begin in just a moment. But in Matthew chapter 19, there's a context that's playing out. Jesus has been teaching a, a young follower and this follower has kind of asked the question about, you know, uh, how am I doing in my faith is basically what he asks. And you find out that this, this rich young man is doing well. He's doing so many great things. He's following after God in so many different ways. But Jesus just gives him a challenge to, to quit relying basically on his own strength and sustainability and just to give it away, to sell it all, and leverage it for the poor, to truly sacrifice where he finds his value, his merit, and put all of his trust in God. And as he finishes that, that conversation in Matthew chapter 19, he literally just says, the first will be last, and the last will be first. And then you jump into verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early, early in the morning, to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and then he sent him out to the vineyard. The context is this. This is kind of the opening thesis for everybody to kind of begin to pull their ears in and listen to what's going on. Now, in starting in this conversation, you begin to see some multiples of scenarios that are starting to play out that would kind of alert those that are listening. But for the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, they would begin to recognize right out of the gate the understanding of this understanding of a landowner and a vineyard throughout the Old Testament and other contexts always pointed in some level to the relationship with God and the people of God. So they're somewhat on their toes. This is going to be a parable that's really going to define for us some new things about God and how our life might be different. But Jesus opens with a phrase that this is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is reminding us of the values that God has that will be lived out in earth. Uh, but technically, the phrase here is kingdom of heaven, which is alluding to God's values up there and how they might play out down here. A couple things begin to come to light as we look at this landowner. The, the, the phrase landowner at this point is really a, a phrase that's really more about house owner. It's the concept of his house that he has and the land that he oversees. 
but it gives understanding that the values of the house, the values of the way this person lives their life begins to permeate everything across the vineyard and all that he owns. So who he is at home is who he is out in public. And so it begins to shape a different understanding of this characteristic. But what is laid out in monetary understanding is part of the key that begins to unlock this parable. Uh, this landowner gives a denarius. Now, what's important for us to understand as far as a denarius and its value is literally this. It's roughly enough to provide three to six days worth of sustenance for a home, obviously, depending on how large the family is, right? If you've got no kids, some kids, camel, you know, whatever you've got in your household, the denarius was usually enough to provide three to six days of sustenance for a family. And so you get this picture that Jesus actually opens up with this conversation that there is this landowner who represents the kingdom of heaven and its values. And what he's doing is he's beginning to engage people to work in his vineyard and providing part of their sustenance, their very strength for living in life. And the question begins to come this. Is this a story of the nature of God or the nature of God's people in the workplace? That's the question that begins to get answered. We're really just looking at a parable about this is who God is or are we looking at something about this is how we should therefore live our life? Here's what it says. Let's follow along in verse 3. It says this. About nine in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. That word right is also best translated as just or appropriate. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing there here all day and doing nothing? Because no one's hired us. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Now, I want to pause here for a second, because sometimes we put on our American glasses, our capitalist uh, glasses, and we start to read into texts, and we start to assume what's maybe happening in the culture and the dynamic of this day, right? Right? And it's always important to understand that Jesus is neither Marxist or capitalist, Democrat or Republican. Jesus is always idealistic and pragmatic. That's his nature. So as you're reading this, some of us, maybe we start to think about these day workers and what might be going on. And you see this, this guy who owns a vineyard and he goes out early in the morning, like six in the morning. He gets started with his work and he goes back into the, into the marketplace and at nine o'clock and at noon and at three and actually at five o'clock, roughly about when everybody's winding up for the day, this worker goes out, invites people in and says, hey, you go and I'll give you what's just. I'll give you what's appropriate. Now, it's, what's intriguing is if you're, a, if you're a day worker in this environment, you would, you would know each other a little bit. You would have a relationship. You would understand on some level what's going on at this point. You know what time work comes. You know what time things play out and what a work day would be normal too. But Jesus doesn't qualify in this parable that somebody showed up later to work because they had a sick kid and they had to get their kid taken care of before they could go to work. Uh, it doesn't say that somebody finished their other job and came back later in the day to pick up more work. None of that gets explained why or how, except this. They are looking for jobs, 
and nobody had hired them. That's why they're there, okay? First service, I got a little more intense on that, so I'm, I've relaxed a little bit, okay? So just want to make sure that we don't impose on the passage maybe what we think from our own capitalistic perspectives. Here's what it says then in verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Hey, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Your stomach should start to get a little uncomfortable at this point, okay? So when those who were hired first, they expected to receive more. That would seem normal, right? But each one of them also received a denarius. Your, your stomach's starting to get in knots. You feeling the tension? When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour. Insert lazy bums, right? That's kind of what he's, they're saying. And you have made them equal. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? So take your pay and go. I want to give the one who has hired the last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I'm generous. So the first will be last, and the last will be first. Or the last will be first, and the first will be last. Jesus drops the mic, walks off, and everybody, right? I mean, you see a scenario here. I mean, Jesus probably should have hired, you know, for this, for this, this worker, uh, somebody who would navigate, be a project manager. Here's how it's appropriate to handle the business of the day. Here's what's appropriate for you if you want to miss out on drama. If you don't want to be the person that gets all sorts of people upset with you, make sure that you do this. But understand that the kingdom of heaven, the portrait that's being portrayed, is one that is just and right. It's a picture of equality and equity. And the conversation begins to stir up something that in the tension of those who committed from the early portion of the day to do as asked, somehow now they feel like they deserve more because those by which this landowner has been gracious towards, they received the same amount. But Jesus says, hey, 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 hey. Isn't it the landowner's privilege? Isn't he the one who gets to determine what an appropriate wage is and to honor all people? Well, I don't know. Is it? And what's it say about us? What's it say about us when we're the kind of people who feel like we're entitled to more because we did what was asked of us? The challenge of this parable becomes really perplexing in a lot of ways. It, most of us, we want to we begin to look at it. Oh, this, this is just a story about God's generosity. It's about God's salvation, and God just gives love to everybody. And so this is, this is what we should bask in. Let's just, let's just make it some giant spiritual sandwich, and we'll all just go home. And yet there's some real truth underneath this, that Jesus is talking to 
real life people who work in a marketplace, understanding that there are people in the cracks and crevices of the community, understanding that Israel already had the character and habit of leaving some of the wheat and grain and grapes along the edge of their vineyards and fields for those who did not have. And he speaks of a character of God that goes above and beyond. And we would think this would be good news for all of us. But it's the very practical, real-time, real-life stuff that makes us go, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what that would be like to live in a world that an owner would invite people in but continue to keep being, I mean, that would, just, that would just mess up the whole system. Everybody would want to work for that owner. Uh, yeah, that's probably true. Everybody would want to be a part of that owner's business. Yeah, that, that, that's true. But the picture that gets painted of God is one of both equity and equality. And so you ask the question, what's the question? Is this a story of the nature of God or of the nature of God's people in the workplace? And anyway, we tried to figure out a way that we might want to uh, illustrate this. And so I, I brought with myself, uh, brought here today with myself, just a, a small magnet. Okay, you'll notice that it's got an N on the top for the north and uh, S on the bottom for south, right? You know, because a magnet is polarized on two ends, right? It pulls on the north side, it pulls on the south side. Matter of fact, if you take another bar like this and you try and put north to north or south to south, what happens? It begins to push away, Right? And so we know that a magnet has two different ends of polarity, but it's still just one magnet. And what you realize is when, when you use a magnet, it doesn't matter the end, both has the ability to draw metal to it. Because though it has two polar opposites, it is one in its intent. And that's the same that's true about this passage. The question isn't, whether or not this is about God or as whether it's about us? The answer is, it's both. It's both. Jesus is using a parable to not only describe the very nature and character of God, but he's also applying something that plays out in our life, in our world. What Jesus is trying to say in, in, through this landowner is that God's very character, his nature, is one of both justice and of generosity or of grace. God's grace has been provided for our salvation. There's this eternal truth that we know that God's payment, God's death, the death of Jesus on the cross was the payment for our sin and our everlasting life, our forgiveness. But it's for everyone. And so maybe there's this truth that we need to begin to see when we begin to see everyday moments of God's generosity play out around us, and it's this. We should never grumble when God is gracious. Jesus is helping us understand that the generosity and the nature of God, whenever people begin to experience it, it should be something that we celebrate. Why? Because those of us who have given our life to Christ, those of us who have experienced this death, burial, and resurrection of self, we recognize that we did not get what we deserve, right? Whether we grew up in the church, whether we've been in the church for a long time, whether we have a deathbed confessional, the gift of God is paid by Jesus. And because of his payment, he determines He's the one that sets the appropriate justice. And we, we all get this gift because of him. 
But he's also saying, hey, you know what? The, char- the character of God should then be expressed through our people. Grateful people who understand what God has done should really begin to create a generosity in us. And so second, we should be the kind of people that celebrate with others as God is generous. We should be the first ones to party. We should be the first ones to come along and say, you've got this gift too, right? Or whether somebody has grown up in the church, whether they've been in the church for a long time, whether they've been in the church for a minute, or whether they've lived some atrociously rebellious life and come to faith at the end of their life, everyone should be celebrated. It's a gift for all. Now, I, I, uh, I want to use an illustration that's real time with us so that we can kind of think about the generosity and how things play out. But uh, so I'm going to use something that's really very, very pertinent to uh, Champaign-Urbana. Is that okay? I mean, this is going to walk pretty close to us, but I want to, I, I want to bring it real time so if you feel it. I don't know if you've heard, but they've opened a Chick-fil-A off of Prospect. Have you noticed that? Okay. Yeah. We're not going to start a revival here, okay? You know, it's, it's just chicken. It's not Jesus' chicken. I just want to say that just for real We have a staff person that it has been his life goal to get Chick-fil-A for a year. I don't know if you know this, but before before Chick-fil-A opens, they provide an opportunity for a community to be able to get Chick-fil-A free for a year. Some of you are disappointed you didn't know that. Well, maybe they'll open another one on our back 40 and we we will all show up and we'll get Chick-fil-A for a year. Anyway, this young man, Garen Holt, is passionate about Chick-fil-A, and he's our student pastor. And so for weeks and months, he's been talking about, I'm going to win Chick-fil-A for a year. I'm going to win Chick-fil-A for a year. I'm not going to say psychotic, but I'm going to say it was a little bit obnoxious. It was all the time, you know. But I'm happy for him, really. I am. And so the day came, and 300, over 350 people showed up to get free chicken from Chick-fil-A, but they only give 100 They only give 100 tickets to people. So what they did is everybody put their name in with a number, and then they did a raffle. And what we found out is Garen, uh, a youth sponsor or two, and a friend, all four of the people that were hanging out together, they all got the raffle. They all won. So people pitched tents, and they were hanging out and singing Kumbaya and, you know, whatever they do at Chick-fil-A. You know, they're all spending their night in the parking lot. And while they're doing that, the next morning they get up, and they come out, and they open the doors, and they invite them in, and they get a free T-shirt with their sticker. And then they're, they're awarded this idea that, You've got Chick-fil-A for a year. The night before, after the raffle was done, I get a text. Guess who it's from? It's from Garen. Garen wants to tell me, hey, there's four of us here. Hey, we all had to go in the raffle. Hey, there were so many people. And you know what? We won. It was this. this, this. I mean, he, my phone is blowing up. I've had to change it in to get a new one. It burned out the engine. I mean, just he was going crazy on excitement with this, this moment. Here's what I wanted to say to him. With all the pastoral strength that I could, I just wanted to say, good for you, right? You know? I mean, because I like Chick-fil-A, but I don't love, I mean, I, I love Jesus. I love my wife. I don't, Chick-fil-A, it's a chicken sandwich. You know, can we, can we just take it within, within arms? But to Garen, he had accomplished something he had never accomplished before. So you know what I texted back? Awesome. Three or four exclamation points, you know, a couple of things, you know. Because the last thing that Garen wants is a party pooper, Right? This is what he wanted. This is what he hoped for. 
And can I tell you that the entire office wing celebrated all week for the joy that Garen had gotten free Chick-fil-A for a year. It was like a revival. You know, people were just, just overwhelmed with God's generosity. I mean, it was just, it, it wasn't quite that, but it was exciting, okay? Here's what I want you to know. Friends, we should never be the people, we should never be the people that grumble against God's generosity. And we should always be the first to celebrate when God begins to transform somebody else's life. Shouldn't we? Yeah. yeah. So don't be a party pooper, okay? Can I say that pastorally? Don't be a party pooper. Don't be the kind of person that says, well, that's not fair, and I've done this, and this. You know what was fair? What was fair was what God determined. That God said, this is the payment for your sin. This is the payment for your life. And I'll pick up the check. And we all benefit. Whether from our childhood. Whether from being in faith for a long time. Whether being in faith for a moment. Or whether coming to faith in just an instance. Well, that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful conversation. But how does it impact? How does the generosity of God influence our lives? I mean, isn't that the real brass tacks? If it's not just about one, if it's about both, how does it change your lives? I mean, gracious generosity is what, what should be compelled out of our lives. We should be the kind of people that we walk around understanding that all that God has done for us that all that we have and all that we are, we should leverage our lives back in ways to serve and care for people. Oftentimes, we'll preach a message like this and we'll say something like, oh, you should buy someone's coffee in the drive-thru. And eh, that's nice. Or, or you should buy somebody lunch to say thanks for something special they did. Or maybe you should send a card just to tell your appreciation to what, maybe how somebody's impacted your life. And all those are good. But I think when I read this parable, it's a generosity above and beyond, isn't it? I mean, God's a God that not only gives people what is just for the sustenance of their lives, but he gives that same to those who maybe haven't worked as hard, haven't been in it as long, don't understand as much. And God says, no, you too, this gift is for you. So what does it look like with that? Maybe in your neighborhood, you're meeting with your community group one night, and you, you find out that a, a neighbor gal, a single mom is, is pregnant and is in a scenario where she's not going to be able to She's not going to be able to cover her own medical bills. Or if your community group says, you know what? It's not a coincidence that we just live down the street from this gal. We should help with this. Throw her a party. Begin to, to sit around and, and lavish her with gifts, but not just dump gifts or cribs or things on her. Begin to talk about how you can walk with it. Take, take, her, to her, take her to her doctor's visits. When the baby's born, give, give free child care. Begin to step out in ways that your schedule, your life has to be leveraged differently so that she knows that God's generosity is not just something that we stand around and sing about on Sunday mornings, but it compels us to stand in the gap for others. Or maybe you've got a young man in your, in your arm, just your arms reach, and you can tell he can't get a job. He doesn't like to work. You're not sure what to do, but you can tell his heart is broken. He's trying to figure out his life. What if you, what if you as a coworker, what if you as a boss, you say, hey, I've got an entry-level job. Would you come work for me? And not just make sure he gets a paycheck, not just make sure he gets a desk, but be the kind of boss, be the kind of coworker that takes him out every other week and just says, hey, what's going on in your life? Why has this been so hard for you? 
How can I help you overcome this? Hey, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to stick with you in this. And I promise you, this will be a job that will help you get some skills. And I will be there for you. I'll walk with you. Or maybe you've got a coworker and their kids are sick. They've been extremely sick for a long time. And you look at this parent, this man or this woman, and all of their sick days are done. For whatever reason, God's blessed you with all sorts of health. And so maybe you come alongside and you say something like, hey, I've got all sorts of sick days. How how about you have a week of my sick days? Could could you use that? I think I can get that. I think I can gift that to you. Or what if you say, hey, I know you've been out of work a lot. Maybe you know this family pretty well. And so you know that little Johnny has had this real bad cold that he just can't get beat. And you say, hey, Johnny hangs out with my Jimmy, and Jimmy and Johnny are good friends, and, you know, I'm going to take a sick day, and I want you to work, and I'm going to take care of your kiddo. Would that be okay? And I think the generosity of this portrait is not just for us to step back and say, oh, thank you, Jesus, for the free gift. We should be that. We should be thankful. But we should be so thankful that it puts, it puts energy in our muscles. It moves our feet forward. It extends our hands. It opens our eyes. And we become the people that literally, literally allow the generosity of God, his graciousness and desire for truth, his desire to treat people equally with equity, to be able to lift all people up so that we might understand that all of us have been given this free gift of God. We might live and love differently. Wouldn't that be awesome? And that's what Jesus is trying to point to. That the grandeur of God and the graciousness of of his people could in fact let a world see the true nature of God and know his love beyond all reason. Let's move to our time of response. Last week, I, um, I talked about this Baptism Sunday that we have and how much I love it. And I, I talk about how, you know, we, we bring this, this basin out into the room. And it happens that when we do this publicly that, you know, the music is playing. People are standing and singing and they're responding. But we, we take this moment to baptize people into Christ. They experience the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Also being reminded of their own death burial and resurrection, putting away the old man and now living new in Christ-likeness. And I talked last week about how very seldom does anybody come out of the water and not smile, right? There's this recognition that it's, it's not their work, it's not their effort, it's not their talent, it's not their ability, it's God's work in them. And this is a declaration that we trust that what was done on the cross and overcoming the grave is the payment. It is enough for us to be transformed. But the second thing I love about Baptism Sunday, besides the smiles on those that are soaking wet, is the cheering and clapping that happens from the audience. I love it. We're always, we're singing all out before our friends and family, right? We're shooting the images on the screen. We're seeing mothers or fathers sometimes bat their 
baptize their children, their brothers or sisters, baptize siblings. We see families coming forward. We see small group leaders. We see pastors helping others. I mean, we see all sorts of people surrendering their life before us. And when they do, people just start putting their hands together. They're singing with all their heart, but they're celebrating this portrait that they've accepted the gift, that they've declared publicly that their life is committed to Jesus. And so maybe in a room like this, there are moments where we kind of get all wrapped up and we get worked up and we get excited about these kind of things. And, but even when we hear it, we say, this, this, this is for me. Danny, I didn't grow up. I didn't grow up in a, in a home that really followed after Jesus. And well, we said we did, but it, it never clicked for me. Or I haven't been a part of the church. I haven't, haven't, I don't understand all these stories. I, I, I'm not even sure how to really open my Bible. I, you know, if you look at my 20s, I was extremely rebellious. I had my middle finger raised at God and I never took it down. Matter of fact, it's why my life is, it's the way it is now. And some of us, we sit in this moment and we hear about a, a boss that pays all debts. One year, six months, two months, one week, and we go, that's a great story. No, friends, this is the true nature of God. That whether you have been close to God or open to God or whether this is finally the first moment that you're saying, okay, this, I'll get this, I get this, I need this. This gift is for you. It's for me. It's for friends, it's for family, it's for our enemies and our foes. This gift, enough to sustain the forgiveness of all sins, enough to provide the payment for everlasting life, enough to cure all that ails us, God has paid that price. And this gift is for you, it's for everyone. Why would we not accept it? So maybe today, Maybe today's that decision that you need to decide that, okay, I'm, I'm ready to surrender my life to Christ. I'm ready to be baptized. Maybe grab a connection card and write on it. Put one of the given response boxes, one of our pastors will follow up with you. We'll walk through. We'll look at some scripture. We'll talk about your journey. But know this, this gift is for everyone. Let's pray. God, just thank you. May the truth of your sacrifice your generosity and grace. May it pierce our hearts, whether today is the first day, the 100th day, the 1,000th day, the 1 millionth day. May we know this gift is for all of us. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. If you're new to first, here's what we do in the next few moments. The music's about to play, and we'll be invited to stand and sing and respond. And many people will respond by coming to these prayer benches. And maybe today's just a good day to come and say, thanks, God. Thanks for giving me what I did not deserve. Thank you for the generosity. God changed me. Many of us will go to these six tables around the room where there's bread and there's juice, and we're reminded that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And the bread and the juice, we'll eat that, and we'll be reminded that it was Jesus' body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. And we will commemorate and celebrate God's work in us and through us. And others of us will respond. Maybe we'll fill out a connection card. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll grab one and there's a decision of faith or a prayer request or something. And we'll take it to one of these four 
given respond boxes and we'll, we'll invite people into our life to either help us with our journey or help us with our, our prayers or help us with decisions that we need to make. And others will give us our tithes, our offerings, whether through the Give app or through whatever. But may we respond in this moment when we're ready to respond back to God so that his generosity compels us to a graciousness to a world like they've never seen.